Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of us. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 67 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey there. We also have Aaron Frost filling in for us. Hello. And uh, we have a special guest, and that is Toby Ho. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Guys, why don't we have you introduce yourselves really quick? Let's start with you, Aaron. Okay, so I'm a front end developer at Domo, open source evangelist. Well, you can call me whatever you want. So. <laughs> so, yeah, I've worked here for a few months. I love it. I'm writing a book on the next version of ECMAScript and uh, dad with three kids. So, yeah, that's me. Aaron's too modest. He's also a big-time uh, conference speaker. He's a regular presenter at local user groups. And uh, like I said before, he's one of our evangelists. So he was hired as a really high-level uh, front-end engineer here at Domo to help us take our JavaScript and uh, front-end work into the, you know, to the next level, really. Yeah, I also showed up late to a workshop that he was putting on using um, Node and Twilio, and that was pretty cool. So, Yeah, that thing has been the bomb. Also, uh, Aaron's presentation at FluentConf with uh, uh, Dave Geddes was apparently like the hit of the entire show. The, the best received, even the organizer said he thought it was definitely one of the best uh, presentations done at FluentConf. Yeah. They said it was the most entertaining, and Simon said... He wished we had cut it down to 10 minutes and that they had made his keynote because it was, it was pretty fun. We had a lot of fun with it. So, cool. yeah, the, uh, it's up on YouTube. We'll put links in the show notes. It's a really great, they actually shocked themselves during the talk yeah. using uh, an electron, electrodes. I even got uh, Nick Zakis to get up there on stage and shock me. So it was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. You, cool, you wouldn't cool. even have to pay me to shock you, Aaron. I know. Well, I didn't have to pay him either. <laughs> I, I know a lot of people who actually I wouldn't have to pay to shock me. So. <laughs> yeah. There's All also right. a cool sort of Dave shocking uh, Paul Irish, right? Yeah. Yeah. I go. saw that online too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Toby, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, I am also a father of three kids. So, yay. I brand myself a JavaScript hacker. Uh, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I organize a local JavaScript meetup there. I'm also the author of Testum, uh, which is a interactive JavaScript unit test runner. Awesome. So we brought you on the show to talk about Testum. So do you want to give us a little bit more in-depth explanation of what it is and what it does? Sure, I'd love to. It is a um, command line tool. Like I said, it's a unit test runner. Uh, it has a development mode and a continuous integration mode. And the dev mode is designed to streamline your test-driven development workflow. Uh, it has a text-based UI, sort of akin to uh, NCurses apps. You, know, you draw the UI with ASCII characters, and it even has tabs and panels and stuff like that. It'll uh, monitor your source files for changes and rerun the tests for you whenever you save a file. And that part of it is inspired by um, Autotest and Guard in the Ruby world. And uh, it is test framework agnostic. So out of the box, it'll support Jasmine, Mocha, QUnit, Buster.js, 
and it, it can run your tests in all the major browsers plus phantom.js and node.js the uh, the continuous creation mode is um designed to be used on a ci server which will rerun your tests whenever you check in any code and then what that does is it'll iterate through all the browsers you want to run your tests on one by one and then finally report all the results nice that actually sounds like something that I would really, really like to have. The The question that I have is uh, regarding, for example, the front-end tests usually re require some kind of DOM, some kind of user interface. So how do you get around that? So I, I think you had um, Justin Soros on at mm -hmm. one point, and uh, he, he, I think he get, did a pretty good job of uh, explaining the, he, the approach that he takes. Actually, to be honest, for UI work, um, I tend to do more of end-to-end -end integration tests rather than unit tests for those. Because for me, UI is a very kind of, a lot of times you're not sure what UI you want to begin with. You kind of have to see it and play with it to really know. And then afterwards, you're going to want to make a lot of changes. So I kind of, kind of don't go test first when I am writing UI in a lot of cases. And then when I'm happy with what I'm seeing, then I'll go in with like an end-to-end -end testing tool. And my tool of choice at the moment is Capybara, which is Ruby-based. So you don't use Testum for your integration tests? I actually do. I actually uh, drive the Capybara tests from Testum <laughs> just because I'm kind of... I do everything in Testum nowadays. <laughs> so is that something that's easy for everybody to do, or is it you feel like you're doing it because you know Testum so well that for the average layperson you wouldn't necessarily recommend it? I think it would be on par, more or less, with a like a guard sort of setup. So if you're happy with a guard setup doing that, there's probably not a strong incentive for you to switch. I'm not uh, familiar with the uh, guard setup. What is that? So Guard is a um, is another Ruby based tool. Uh, it just like monitors your source files, and on save, it'll do something for you. Yeah, I use it with my Ruby project. So Guard basically you have plugins for it. So the ones that I use the most frequently are the RSpec plugin and the Bundler plugin. And so when I update my gem file, it will reinstall uh, or it'll uh, rerun Bundler and install any new libraries or new versions of libraries that I tell it to. Um, and then I also use it with RSpec. And so if I save a file, then Guard will automatically run the related spec files for me. You, you can you can kind of, from one perspective, you can think of Testum as like a Guard with a fancier UI. Like if, if all you want it to do is to run some shell command if a file changed. You can use Testum for that. Then it's kind of just like a fancier guard. So uh, you wrote this in Ruby then, it sounds like? Uh, no, this is written in Node. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Oh, that's cool. So I have a question about the uh, UI for it. I saw it uh, demoed a few months ago, and the UI was, I want to call it a little like 8-bit-ish. Yeah, it's very retro, and I yeah. love it. Yeah. 
You, you, did you uh, do that on purpose or was it because you're not a designer and so you kind of defaulted to that? I don't know. I am definitely not a designer. I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to imagine what a designer would come up with in terms of a text-based UI. <laughs> right. I don't know. This is. Just, I, I actually did kind of do several mockups, sort of like just on uh, in uh, HTML uh, to to compare, and then kind of I chose one, and this is what I, what I came up with. And uh, about how I implemented it. Uh, actually, initially, I uh, th- there was a NCurses binding for Node, and I used that initially. But um, the biggest problem with that is that it requires the user of Testum to compile some C code because NCurses is a C library, and that's slow for one. And second, it won't run on Windows at all. And then I found this module called Charm that uh, James Halliday wrote, and that doesn't require any compilation whatsoever. It's pure JavaScript, and it's like a couple hundred lines. That's it. So that works fantastic. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah, I liked the retro look. I thought, I thought it was pretty cool. Hmm. I think you did a great job. Thank you. Do you get most, mostly positive feedback about your UI? Yeah, yeah, from... I actually don't get too many feedback about the UI itself. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like it. And the few feedback that I heard about that, they, they like the UI. Uh, I do get a lot of feedback about, oh, the browser launcher feature is so cool and, and other stuff and using it with CI and things like that. So, so let's talk about the browser launchers here for a minute. So it actually will. Uh, fire up uh, Chrome or Firefox or whatever you've got on your machine and uh, run your tests in the browser? Correct. Uh, yeah, it'll it'll kind of look for the executables for, for the browsers at their default installed locations, and it'll figure out whether it's there. If it's there, then it'll try to run it, basically. And I've... I figured out where all the locations are for all the different browsers on Mac and Windows and Linux. Yeah, so I'm just kind of wondering, like, if if you have Chrome and Firefox and Safari, let's say, it, it'll run all of them every time? Uh, in dev mode, it won't run. By default, it actually won't run any launchers for you. Uh, you can configure it, too. In the configuration file, you can say... Uh, when you run Testum in dev mode, then launch Chrome for me or launch PhantomJS for me. Or you can also configure a custom launcher. In continuous integration mode, it will try to launch all the browsers that it can. Because in my opinion, in dev mode, you kind of, you don't care so much about exhaustively testing all the possibilities. And in, in, in CI mode, it's like, whatever, it's doing it offline so it can take as long as it wants to. Gotcha. So in CI mode, is CI mode designed for the other CI systems like Jenkins or TeamCity or whatever, or is it its own sort of CI system where it does all the runs for you? Yeah, it's definitely designed to work with something like Jenkins or TeamCity. Um, I'm not quite that ambitious (laughs) to build my own CI server. So it doesn't trigger itself (laughs) to run the tests? 
No, it's basically a command line. Uh, com- it's a command line command. Uh, you run it. It'll output the test results in TAP format, which stands for Test Anything Protocol. And at the end, if it fails, it'll exit with a one. If it passes, it'll exit with a zero. Gotcha. So I'm kind of wondering, does it is it a global installer? Or am I allowed to have like multiple versions of test them on my machine, like in in a different project? If you were to update the release of test them. Um, could I have both both, vers- both versions on the machine, you know, one for each project? Or how does that work? You, you can do either. Uh, yeah, so actually it's very much in the spirit of um, NPM. Uh, NPM has a global mode and a local mode. So global, you just, you're going to install it globally into like user local bin or something like that. This is what I usually do. I just run it globally. But uh, people, I have talked to people who like to install test them within their own projects. And that's the local mode of NPM, which is the default, actually. So if you just do NPM install test them within your project folder, if you're working on a node project, then it'll install it into the uh, node modules directory within your project. Gotcha. That's cool. So, um, I'm, I'm we're, Joe and I are sitting there talking. We're wondering about the grep filtering. Like, is there any way we can tell it to run a certain set of tests or does it always have to run the whole suite? So there's a, um, source files configuration, uh, in the configuration file. The configuration file is usually called testum.json or testum.json. YML, if you want to use YAML. And um, you just specify the source files as an array, and the array can accept a glob uh, format. So you can use wildcards and stuff like that to match uh, the set of source files that you want within a directory or, or so forth. Being that it's a config file, I assume it's not Therefore, it's not necessarily very easy to make changes to it without basically opening it up and messing with it in a text editor or writing some kind of facility. So I can't say, you know, turn it on and just filter these and then, oh, I want to switch the set of tests that I'm running. So turn it on and run it for everything, you know, with a very, it's not, there's nothing like I can just add a command line parameter or anything like that. Uh, yeah, you're, you're correct. But the way I like to do that is, um, not via the command line. And this consideration is kind of influenced by the way that the dev mode works. Um, so the dev mode is meant, this is how it's meant to work. Um, I would just open up, just run testum in the terminal and it's like persistent. It's, it's always running on, on the side. And then on the other side of my monitor, I would have my text editor. And I'll basically be doing my work in the test text editor without interacting with the terminal at all because the terminal is just going to rerun the test every time I make a change. So I guess my the design goal is very much to not to have to switch back and forth uh, between the two windows. And so there's an alternative to sort of adding a parameter on the command line to sort of run a subset of the tests, which is um, in Mocha, there is 
a feature called exclusive tests. So uh, Mocha has this syntax of like the BDD style syntax where it's like describe this and then it does this and so forth, right? You guys familiar with that? Yeah. 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 So you can tell Mocha to only run a subset of the tests in your test suite. If you just rewrite your describe to describe that only, or you could also tell it to run only a single test case if you rewrite it to it that only. Yeah. And then, and then the reason this is nice is you never have to leave your text editor to make that sort of test subset change. You can just turn on and off that only all from your text editor without going back to the terminal. So this is the workflow that I like. Yeah, we hate that workflow because people keep checking that in. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally understand that. Um, so I protect against that by using a Git hook uh, be- before you commit. So you're not allowed to commit if you have that in your code. Uh, that's nice. Yeah, I, I've used that same trick, except I usually put a comment in that's like no commit or something. And then if that's in there, it'll it'll stop you from committing and say, you've got this on this line. So then if you make that change, you put that comment in. And then when you need to take it out, it'll remind you. So that's a very common workflow to just have the command line running and just watching your files and then rerunning all your suite of tests. And, uh, you know, around here, we, we have around six or 700 unit tests. So that takes us around six or seven seconds, typically, to execute and run. But the problem with that method is, and we use, we use Karma, not Testum. Um, one, you, you do get notified within six or seven seconds whether your test fails. But if you're going to do things like trying to figure out why your test is failing, okay, I've got a failing test. I want to figure out why that test is failing, and I'm not really 100% sure what I did. I might need to do either do some debugging, or I want to maybe just before I bother going all the way into debugging, I just want to log out a couple of things. Karma's pretty bad about how it shows basically logging things out to the console. And I'm, maybe Testum might be better, but I assume it still has kind of the same issue. If you log something out to the console in a browser, you can kind of explore around in that object and dig down into it and see it. Whereas the command line, you don't have any real interactivity, right? Plus, if you're going to rerun all 600 tests as you're just trying to diagnose why one test is failing, then it, that can be you know painful just waiting even just the seven seconds because I, I think I fixed it, I click save, and now I wait seven seconds to find out whether or not I've, that test failed or not. So, so we've been, we've actually... A guy here contributed to Karma to try to get Karma to pass through grep filters into Mocha because Mocha has its grep option, which is sadly the only thing that we have on for client side. You go to server side testing framework and they actually have real, you know, test sessions where you can choose a subset of tests and then make that your session. And also just very quickly through UI say, Oh, I want to just run this one test. Yeah. I, I would still recommend you try the dot only trick because that's been working very well for me. And yeah, so if I need to debug a one single test, the first thing I would do is just say it dot only. So it would only run that one single test. And I mean, that, that makes the test feedback immediate. That's first most important thing. You're going to get sub second feedback basically if you run only one test. Um, but the second thing is, it isolates, right? It makes sure no other tests are affecting the outcome of this test, just in case, right? Right. Uh, but also, any log output that you put in there, you know, are coming from this one test, right? So you can kind of put console.log statements 
anywhere you want. You know, it's coming as a result of the code in this one test. So that's very nice. But debugging is very nice there. Um, I know with Karma, they ship a modified version of Jasmine that also has this exclusive feature. And I, I know the Karma guys are also, they're also big fans of this approach, this, uh, this exclusive test. Uh, but in Karma, they call it D describe, double D describe and double I it instead of the dot only syntax. Console logging. Um, yeah, you had a comment about console logging, right? And right. I, I think it's fairly, once you isolate like this, and once you isolate down to one test, then console logging will help a lot more because you know it's all coming from the same place. So what is, I, I'm very familiar with Karma, but what does Testum's output look like? Say I log out an object. Does it actually explore the object graph and print it all out? And, and Karma basically just says, gives me a clo- open and close curly brace to just say, hey, that was an object. Oh, yeah, we, okay, I gotcha. Yeah, in Testum, uh, it basically tries to JSONify the object. Mm. If, if that doesn't work, then it'll fall back to, to string. Gotcha. So, um, what about like actual debugging when you, you're developing and you still can't figure out why the test is failing through some console logging and you really just got to walk through the code, right? I, I assume while Testum is running, the browsers that it's running against are also up and available and you can go into there and open up the developer tools and put in breakpoints. But Karma has a weakness, um, unless you, you have to go to the debug page with Karma to fix this. But, uh, it actually delivers a timestamped version of the file because it's watching the files. And so if you set a breakpoint and then you change that file, the breakpoint disappears. You have to go over to the, yeah, there's a little debug button. You click over to, to get a version that doesn't do that. Does, how does that work with Testum? If I want to actually de- debug and set breakpoints and have those breakpoints held in between as I change that same file. I see. Okay. So I, I normally try to stay away from using breakpoint debugging just because again, I prefer to always stay in the text editor because that's when the workflow is fastest. But once in a while, I do want to use the debugger in Chrome or something. In that case, I'm going to actually use the debugger statement in my source code rather than going into the browser and clicking on the gutter. I assume you have another Git hook for that? Correct. Uh, yeah, I have a Git. I, I use Git hook to eliminate debugger statements, console.log statements, and this dot only statements from my tests. So the browsers support conditional breakpoints depending on the browser and the development tools and stuff. Debugger is a little bit more, you know, stuck. Like you can't, it's a bigger pain if you're do, inside of a loop. Yeah, but, um, but you can always use the if statement, right? Gotcha. That's what I do sometimes actually. Just writing a little if statement around it. Yeah. Uh, so when you, when you're debugging, so I'm debugging a problem. I, I, again, I'm isolating it down to one test. So it, it's only so all the stuff, all the mess I make is only going to be kind of within the context of this one test. So I will make a big mess. I don't care if, if I'm debugging. I would, I would say. If the client ID is 55, then I will put a debugger statement or something like that. Because at the end, when I solve the issue, I'm just going to remove all that junk. I've got another question for you. A lot of times I have stuff written in CoffeeScript or I want things minified. 
In fact, last night I was at a Ruby meetup, and uh, we were actually talking about JavaScript front-end systems, and they were running into issues when they minified AngularJS. And so I would like to be able to test my code as I've written it, and then the code after it's minified, nuggified, and all that stuff. Are there ways to do that so that it can test both before and after? Yeah, you you can set up, I, I'm trying to think, probably the easiest way to do that is just to make two different custom configuration files at this moment. So you would make one, and, and custom has these hooks to allow you to compile anything that needs to be compiled in order for a test to run. So you can make one that's for development and then make another one that's for production, sort of, or another one that sort of minifies and everything. Nice. So you just create two files and then you say, okay, run the development one. Okay, everything seems happy to run the production one before I go and push it out to the world. Yeah, and if I were to do that, I would probably only run the production one in the CI server or something. So I don't have to do that myself manually. That makes sense. And then it can do all the compilation and what have you that I need to do. Yeah. Awesome. We were wondering if you might give us like sort of a comparison between Testum and Karma. Yeah, the the benefits and the drawbacks, and then it would be cool if part two, you have to say one nice thing about karma. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. But it's true um, that this tool is really analogous to karma, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, yeah, I, I won't have any trouble saying nice things about karma. Those are awesome guys. So the they're also the people who build AngularJS, right? And AngularJS is all about testing and every, uh, easy testing out of the box, uh, stuff like that. So I think Testum and Karma, they kind of had the same motivation, uh, initially, which was that using JS or JS test driver. So people were trying to use JS test driver before that. And it's kind of hard to use and also kind of buggy and, it seems like it had, hadn't been well-maintained or the author just kind of trailed off and didn't want to take care of the issues. So I think we both built our tools motivated by that. Kind of, We wanted to build a better JS test driver. So in terms of comparing the two, I actually haven't used Karma extensively, but what it has that Testum doesn't is it has a pretty good integration with WebStorm, I think. Like even to the debugger level from what I've seen. So that's definitely something that Testum doesn't and I I don't plan on doing something like that. Testum I think has a nicer UI, but that might be subjective. I'm kind of like I wanna be UI person, but not really. So I, I think about UI and UI design a lot. That's kind of more important to me in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I like the testing UI better. But aside from that, there's definitely tons of overlap. And, uh, yeah, it, you just, I think if you want to choose between the two, just use both and then make a choice <laughs> and look at the community activity around each one. I think right now, Karma has more community activity around it right now. Definitely. Yeah. Well, it looks like they're both pretty easy to set up. So you're you're only out a little bit of time to 
figure out which one looks like it's going to be a better fit for your setup. Yeah, I agree. They're both designed to be easy to use out of the box, definitely. So I guess my next question is, when you're testing your JavaScript, what do you use? Do you use Mocha and, or do you use any of these other ones, Jasmine or QUnit or Buster.js um, or whatever? I've used several of them. I, I used to use Jasmine for the most part. And I recently switched over to Mocha, I guess mainly because of the dot only feature, which I like. I, and we actually, we actually try to get that feature into Jasmine. But um, it has not been well received so far, <laughs> so we're we're still trying. Uh, th- there's a fork of that trying to add uh, that only support to Jasmine. But yeah, I, I've used QUnit for some other stuff, some different stuff. With Mocha, I guess it is much more like Mocha is more of a smaller framework than Jasmine. It doesn't try to do everything. So usually people will get a assertion library like Chai to do their assertions, and then they might get a testable library like Sinon to do their mocking and stubbing and things like that. Right. Which one do you prefer, though? If you, if you're starting a new JavaScript project, what do you reach for? Currently, I have been happy with Mocha, and I I actually went away from the BDD syntax. I've done the BDD syntax for a long time, but I recently went away from it. So now I use a more uh, lean syntax. Just It's very much like the QUnit syntax, where it's just test something, test something. Gotcha. And then which browsers do you usually go with on, on this kind of thing? Either Chrome or PhantomJS when I'm doing development. Yeah, Chrome is definitely the best when it comes to you need to do debugging and things like that. Did you run into any hiccups um, implementing any of these browsers, launchers? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's it's tricky. So the hardest part is, well, I mean, ideally you want to uh, set up like a fresh user profile for the browser so that it's not like remembering your sessions from when you're actually using the browser to browse and stuff. So that gets tricky. And Opera actually recently has broken that feature. I don't know why, and I don't know how to fix that yet. So, and some, yeah, sometimes it can change from when, when the browser upgrades and stuff like that. And then I might have to be get on top of those changes and things like that. So that can be hard sometimes. Uh, I was curious about, uh, being able to set up multiple different, you know, configurations of test them. Say you got, like a development version, you know, so you got your development configuration, then you got your more production oriented configuration. Maybe you got a couple of those. Um, one for like a, a quick CI and, and, uh, one for like your full, we're going to run more stuff. Is there a way to, and, and of, of all those different configurations, maybe a lot of the configuration is actually shared between those three different scenarios, right? Is there a way to, um, share the configuration and have, you know, one file that has all the common ones? pieces of configuration and other files that have just the overrides uh, with Testum? Uh, no, not at the moment. At, at the moment, it's pretty limited. The, the configuration is pretty limited in regards to that, but um, yeah, I would like to make that better in the future. Your, your I'm, configuration I'm, files are JSON files, right? Yeah, correct. They can either be JSON or YAML. So, so you could conceivably uh, 
put some little thing in there that, that just builds them out. So if you change the base file, it, I don't know. Yeah, that, that, that would be a good feature to add for sure. Like do a grunt task or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I was going to say grunt would be easy to do this stuff with. Mm, yeah. So, uh, tell me, who are some of your main contributors that you want to give a shout out to? Like, who helps out a lot in the community? There's Reynolds, uh, real name is Jake, and, uh, he is sort of my, one of my first enthusiastic users, and he gave me a lot of feedback and a lot of pull requests. And he, he's also the one that kind of pushed me towards making it work with running Node.js tests instead of just the browser. Um, so yeah, give a shout out to Jake. And um, Derek Brands helped me a lot with the browser stack integration. So browser stack integration, in my opinion, is really a huge feature. So you can basically run in CI mode. I currently have my tests running on all these different browsers that are hosted in the cloud. And browser stack has like a huge menu of different browsers and different versions of those browsers that you can choose from. So it's kind of amazing if you think about it, that you can choose whatever browsers you want and then just say, run the test and it'll do it on all of them. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. So uh, another question we were, we were wondering, so a lot of us, when we're developing for the front end, we, we, we use a lot of grunt watch tasks. And it sounds like Testum kind of runs on its own. Do you prefer to kind of avoid grunt when you're working with, with your tests or how do you integrate with grunt or what, you know, what are your recommendations with grunt? Cause it's, I mean, grunt's gotten so big. What are your thoughts around grunt? I personally don't actually use grunt. So I guess I'm not a good. Good person to ask that question. Um, yeah, I, I, I do agree. Grunt has gotten big and, uh, it, it's got a lot of features and it seems like there's a lot of, uh, potential integration points, but I just don't know those very well. So, so maybe some, somebody that knows more about Grunt can help out there. I assume nobody's written a, a pre-built Grunt task for Testum. There, there is one actually. Um, I assume it's just like you configure it, you configure test them within Grunt and then it'll just run it. I, oh, I also want to give a shout out to uh, Justin Searles and Dave Mosher. They have been also been very supportive in uh, like just initially getting the word out about test them and using it a lot. They also built this scaffolding app scaffolding tool called Lyman for, for like kind of bootstrapping your web apps. Things like that, which uses uh, Testum for its testing features. So, hmm. I actually would like to ask you guys, like, how do you guys approach testing in in your work? We we practice the TA TFT uh, system. <laughs> I gotta put a link to that in the show notes too. Yeah, you have to link that. I, I won't repeat what it means on the uh, what it stands yeah, for. Clean yeah. podcast. Yeah, clean podcast. <laughs> So, like, uh, I can speak to uh, what uh, Aaron and I do here at Domo. We uh, we do a significant amount of unit tests. We have a fair number of people who do test after, and then a few, probably maybe a third of us who do test first development. And so we do we write a lot of unit tests. Um, we we happen to be using Karma 
to uh, execute the unit tests here, but we also are executing our unit tests just using the browsers, uh, like Mocha's uh, HTML test runner file. We do that a fair amount for debugging. Um, we're maybe slowly migrating away to just using just the Karma and then doing more like, I, I know that people have talked about the Git hook stuff that you were talking about. And it kind of seems like that actually might give us a little bit more enabling for that. So then we also, we have some other groups, our QA groups write UI tests and we write a small number of integration tests, but mostly we just do unit tests around here and we just run those a lot. Yeah, we let our QA team kind of take on the integration stuff. They use a Ruby-based framework as well. So does that answer your question? Do you find, like, TDD, do you find, like, do you run into any trouble, like, around what kind of tests to write or how, how to be more productive? Like, as in, like, when you do in TDD, is a little bit tricky sometimes to get it right, in my opinion. Like, it's like, uh, and I, I work with some programmers who are newer to TDD, and I find one thing they do is they would over-test, so they would either write too many tests or assert too many things or they're like, using mock, mocks too much, and then, yeah, that could become wasted effort after a while. Yeah, I'm a really hardcore TDDer when I'm over here at Domo. I've been working really hard to get more and more people to use TDD, and then we've we recently hired some people that are more TDD fans. Aaron is, and um, like Dave Geddes that I mentioned. But I definitely find that there's a couple of hard places when writing TDD, especially in JavaScript. Um, anything that integrates with the UI, it's hard to TDD that. Um, it's also oftentimes hard to understand the code enough about the code to write to TDD it anyway. So I usually practice a system where I'll spike it out and kind of write the code and figure out how it's supposed to write, and then I'll throw that all away and start over with TDD once I kind of get an idea so I can still let the TDD actually shape my code. Um, I'm firm yeah, that's a great approach. Yeah, yeah, because the, the value of TDD is not the fact that you have tests when you're done, but that it helps you write better code. The tests when you're done is just a byproduct and a, a nice side effect, but uh, I want it to help me shape my code. So if I don't understand enough about the code that I need to spike it out, then I'll just spike it out and come back. So, yeah, we see a lot of those. And we just practice a kind of a sort of an 80-20 rule around here. We get to some places where it's like really hard to test a particular piece or the test becomes really brittle. Uh, because it's unit tests, oftentimes we'll just skip and not unit you know, test that piece and just not spend the, you know, not spend a huge amount of cost for the benefit. But if we find ourselves doing that a lot, then that's pretty much an indication that our code is just too hard to test overall. We've got to rethink something. Yeah, the the approach that you guys are talking about is more or less what I do. Typically, I'm testing a lot more Ruby than I'm testing JavaScript. Though I I, I have to admit that I I should test my JavaScript more than I should more than I do. Yes, you should. However, um, yeah, I I typically go with doing mainly unit tests. Um, I do some uh, integration tests, but it's usually only on like critical path stuff. So, for example, I worked on an application. And I'm going to kind of dance around the details because I'm under NDA, but they had a pretty hairy application process for it where you would apply uh, to to the program. It, it was a critical path thing, and it was a mess. And so we put some integration tests around it so that it would, you know, we could just run that and make sure that it worked instead of manually testing it all the time. And that saved us a bunch of time, and it also provided us with the sanity check on something that was both complicated and important. 
but I don't do that very often at all. We just use Selenium uh, to run those tests, and uh, like I said, it, it worked out pretty well for us, but, you know, the other aspects of the application, we definitely didn't integrate and test them because they just weren't as important. But that one piece was critical to the app and critical to the profitability for the client, so that's what we did. I think that's a great approach to uh, look at those things. And, and if it's too tough, you're spending too much time, just hit those things from an integration level from, you know, in the browser with a, a Selenium or, or a different library. I think that's a great approach. I, I really like that approach. Yeah. Another thing that we find ourselves, uh, another way we handle that with when you find code that's just really hard to test is to try to minif- minimize that quantity of that code by moving the business logic into a separate class that's actually just, you know, just a plain JavaScript class, for example, to make that easy to test and then make the other class that's really hard to test. Like, for example, directives can be hard to test sometimes. There's issues with the extent, in Angular speaking, issues with having an external template. You have to use Karma uh, for the external template. And there's no scene if you have a, a directive that aggregates another directive. There's no scene between the two directives so that you can mock out the interior aggregated directive. Or if a directive has a controller, you can't mock the controller. So sometimes those things are uh, can make a directives difficult to test. So you can manage that by just moving more code into the controller and just testing the since it's just a plain controller that's easy to test, or moving code into a into a service. And even though it kind of makes the class, it sometimes makes something seem a little funny because you're like, well, shouldn't that logic just be here in that class? But if the class is hard to test, then I'm a strong proponent of moving the code somewhere where it's just easier to test and then just putting a tighter coupling between the class that's hard to test and the class that isn't. Hmm, that's interesting, too. Yeah, because I'd much rather have the code tested, the logic tested, and then just worry about, okay, I look at this code and I see that it, you know, integrates with this, so it just has to make some calls and pass values back and forth, and that's a lot easier to look and see if you got something wrong at a glance and and do it by hand than it is to understand, hey, I've got complex business logic with a bunch of branches, and is this working right or not? Versus, it's practically almost becomes configuration. You know, your arrow class is hard to test is mostly configuration, saying I'm passing these calls into something else, right? And that's easy to tell that you did or did not get that right. So it just becomes less risky code. It's less likely that code is going to break in the future. So if you don't have tests around it, then you're you're mitigating the risk. All right. Well, are there any other aspects of testum that we haven't talked through that you want to go over? So I will say that we found a, a solid grunt plugin for it. So, yeah, that's definitely there. Oh, nice. You want to put a, a link in the chat so we have it in the show notes? Yeah, I will link it. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks then. Joe, you want to start us off? You bet. I've only got one pick this week, and that is the book The Rhythmatist by Brandon Sanderson. That's R-I-T-H-M-A-T-I-S-T, not arithmetist, but just rhythmatist. And it's called The Rhythmatist. It's 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 very um, Harry Potter-ish, but I I just absolutely loved it. I zipped through it in just a few days. I just I really couldn't put it down. I thought it was just a, a fantastic book. I enjoyed reading it every bit as much as I enjoyed reading Harry Potter. And the world that he created, I think, is just amazing. Brandon Sanderson's an absolute genius. So I'm going to pick that book for my pick this week. He's crying, everyone. I am. I just hear <laughs> his eyes watered up. Streaming down my face. Yeah. There we go. All right. Aaron, what are your picks? Oh, man. I'm going to have one. I didn't know this picks thing. I was going to need to get prepared for that. 
I do a lot of coding late at night. I do a lot of authoring late at night. A lot of work after the the kids are in bed, and my wife and I have had time to to chat for a bit. So when I wind down, sometimes you know when it's that late, I gotta concentrate again for a second. So I'm gonna do a pick on Call of Duty Black Ops Two because it helps me stretch my legs and get back into it in a few minutes. So that's my pick is Call of Duty Black Ops Two. I love it. Great pick. Nice. All right, I've got a couple of picks here. Uh, the first one is a little bit of background. My laptop. Now, hold, you're all gonna laugh, but it's a it's a white MacBook 2009, so it's kind of an old machine. Um, I upgraded it as much as I could as far as hard drive and memory went, but uh, yeah, I've been getting like an hour's battery out of it, which makes Ouch. me unhappy. Um, and it was it was better before, but. You know, it's just the nature of a machine that's uh, four years old. So wait a uh, second, can you just pop out that battery and put a new one in? That's that's what I'm doing. So I actually went on Amazon and I searched for you know MacBook battery 2009, and I guess uh, they originally were like a hundred dollars or something. And uh, I guess not a lot of people are buying old batteries for old uh, MacBooks. So I got mine for like twenty bucks. So my first pick is Amazon Prime because I'm getting it in like two days. So life will be infinitely better. <laughs> I'm hoping. Did, did, did the battery come with like the videos that uh, instruct you on how to uh, get a weld torch out and pull the case apart and replace? It's like a four-hour job to replace the battery, right? No, you push the button and it comes out, and then you pop the new <laughs> one in. Oh, that's not a Mac. <laughs> yeah. What, what kind of? Are you sure it was a Mac? Maybe you're talking about a PC. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> oh jeez. Why do I feel like I'm being trolled? You, because you are. As I sit here <laughs> on my Mac, that's yeah. going into clips at the beginning. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, super nice. It, it was funny because I was talking to my assistant, and she she's looking for something to solve the same problem on her even older MacBook Pro. And uh, I guess she was having trouble identifying which battery to buy, or um, I'm not even sure. But uh, there are external batteries that go with them. The cheapest one I found was still $150, and I figure $20 is a little bit more palatable before I get around to buying a new machine. But anyway, so uh, yeah, love Amazon and love Amazon Prime. So if you're not an Amazon Prime, then uh, go check it out. The other picks that I have, I started watching The Big Bang Theory. Yes, I know, I'm behind the times. But, uh, oh my gosh, I watched two or three episodes last night, and they were hilarious. So, uh, anyway, um, I'm really enjoying that, so I'm going to pick that. And uh, finally, I'm also going to pick a Handbrake. If you have videos that uh, are not MP4s, you can't play them on your Apple devices, like your iPad, which is what I wanted to watch those particular videos on. And so I use Handbrake to convert them to MP4, and it works terrific. So, those are my picks. Toby, what are your picks? Hi, yeah. Uh, I want to pick a talk by Sandy Matz. Uh, it's called, I think, The Magic Tricks of Testing. It just got great practical advice about sort of unit testing and what kind of tests to write and what kind of tests not to write. Nice. And I also have... Uh, one, it's called The Secrets of uh, Superstar Programmer Productivity by, by Giles Boquette. And he talks about the concept of flow. 
from a book of the same title. It's called Flow, the Psychology of Optimal Experience. And basically, the more you can concentrate and not be interrupted, the more productive you're going to be. And I'm going to post the links into the chat. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Toby. It was a terrific discussion and uh, definitely a tool that I'm going to be looking at here. So, Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, no problem. So uh, we'll go ahead. Yeah, and thanks. Thanks for letting me be on too. That was this is fun. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll have to have you back. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Um, once again, thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, I do want to mention our book club book. We're reading, um, and I know I'm going to say this wrong, JavaScript Allonge by Reg Braithwaite, and we are going to be reading that in a few weeks. I don't have the exact date in front of me, so uh, we'll put that in the show notes so that you know. And uh, we'll look forward to reading the book. Catch you all next week.